You are now listening to the E-Watchman Podcast with your host, Robert King. Welcome, boys and girls. Thank you for listening to the Watchman's Post podcast. This is episode number 71, I believe, recorded for, well, it's the first day of May, but we're going to call it April because I try to do one of these every month and I've uh, missed the month of April, it seems, by a few hours, so... Uh, We're going to call this April, and I'll do another program for the month of May. It's springtime in the Northern Hemisphere, and uh, I'm in the northern part of the northern United States, so uh, it's a special time of year. The spring is just uh, springing. (laughs) A lot of the trees still don't have leaves on them, but everything is greening up nicely, and Little flowers are popping up. The flowering trees are mostly uh, budded. The dogwoods and uh, the red buds are coming out, and it's a beautiful time of the year. And it, you know, it just reminds me uh, that God is alive. There's this life everywhere, and it all through the winter it just seems like everything is dead and gloom, and then, boom, <laughs> spring. <laughs> You can see why people danced around the maypole, you know, in the northern European countries because it was a celebration of life. They didn't know who to thank, but uh, they thanked someone. (laughs) And we thank Jehovah, though, don't we, for life and for all things. He's the reason we move and exist. He's the reason I'm sitting here with this microphone in front of me and uh, the reason we can talk about issues having to do with... uh, the truth. He is the source of all things, including the truth. The format of this program is that uh, I consider questions from readers. I don't boast that I have all of the answers, but it's fun to to give them a crack anyway. And uh, I must say that your questions cause me to think As the proverb says, iron sharpens iron, so the face of one man sharpens another. And that goes for women, too. First question. The Great War caused a massive upheaval of geographic, political, and social structures all across Europe and beyond. Did it have any biblical significance? And, of course, the Great War is now called World War I. So I assume the questioner is asking, did World War I fulfill the prophecies, uh, namely of what Jesus spoke concerning nation rising against nation and kingdom against kingdom? And my short answer is no. And, of course, that flies in the face of everything that Jehovah's Witnesses hold dear, 
that 1914 was the most important date in all human history and because it marked the beginning of the very kingdom of God. Of course, what the questioner mentions is absolutely true. Uh, the Great War caused a tremendous upheaval. It brought an end to the Austro-Habsburg Empire and the Ottoman Empire that dominated uh, the Middle East. It gave rise to uh, British imperialism dominating in the Middle East. They drew up the map as we know it now with the borders of Afghanistan and Iraq and Saudi Arabia and they created countries you know, like the um, United Arab Emirates and Kuwait and on and on. So yes, it had an enormous, enormous impact upon history, which is still ongoing. But when we look into the book of Re Revelation, and of course the scroll of the sacred secrets is handed to the Son of Man, and he begins opening the seals of the scroll. And uh, the first few seals, war, famine, pestilence. And the Bible says, the revelation there says that peace was taken away from the earth so that they should slaughter each other with a great slaughter. And it informs us that death and the grave took a quarter of mankind. Well, do details matter? I would say so. And if we look at the details, the historical facts associated with that great war, there were what? 20 million killed? That's an incredibly ghastly number of people killed. But at that time, there were a billion people alive on the earth. And even if we factor in, uh, some say 50 million perish due to the Spanish influenza, that's a hard number to, to imagine as well. But even combining those two, say 70 million, let's throw in another 30 million just to round it up to 100 million. 100 million is 10% of 1 billion. And we're not talking about 100 million. So it was less than 10%, uh, far, far less than a quarter of 25%. So is, is the Bible to be taken literally? I believe it's close when it says that a quarter of mankind were taken. So I, I don't think we've seen the fulfillment of that prophecy, of all of those prophecies. And, but of course, we're on the edge of World War III. Each week, there's a new development. The, the Anglo-American NATO alliance is determined to encircle Russia and China and provoke them into making a false move. Uh, there's more and more talk of a preemptive nuclear strike by one side or the other. Every week, there's a an incident with a flyby where one nation or the other sends their fighter jets to uh, <laughs> introduce themselves to the other side, whether it's a ship or a plane in the air. So this is how wars start. 
And the way the way the world is now, you know, nuclear weapons didn't exist. <laughs> Thank God, in the Great War, and they were just developed and punctuated the end of this Second World War. Uh, so the, the weapons they have now have never been used in warfare. And now they've developed many nukes, which uh, are, are much less powerful than the big ones, but still very, very powerful weapons. And they're intended for use in a tactical way on a battlefield to take out a fleet of ships or a, an army base or a front line of an advancing army. And they will be used. I mean, NATO has pushed themselves right up to the border of Russia. And people in the West are under the impression that Russia is the aggressor. <laughs> Just imagine if, if Russian bases were you know, ringed around the United States and Canada and into the South and uh, Mexico. Would Americans be concerned? They sure were back in the early 60s when Russia went about setting up nuclear weapons off 70 miles off the coast of Florida and Cuba. It was called the Cuban Missile Crisis, and Kennedy was determined to prevent that threat from, from existing. So something's got to give here. We're, we're facing a war that could be an extinction event, but... We know that it will not be because Jehovah will not allow it. But that's not to say he will not allow millions or hundreds of millions to be extinguished in yet another insane war. Did it have biblical significance? I'm going to answer that question also with a yes. No, it did not fulfill the prophecies of nation rising against nation, of peace being taken away from the earth. But it did have biblical significance in the fact that, as we know, in the second chapter of Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians, Paul forewarned that Satan will have a man of lawlessness who will promote a false parousia, and he will be empowered through every powerful work and lying signs and wonders and every unrighteous deception. Presently, Jehovah's Witnesses believe the man of lawlessness is the clergy. But the false teachings of Christendom hardly constitute powerful works and lying signs and wonders no, they're simply false teachings, and they can easily be sorted out by anyone who honestly examines the Bible. For example, it's easy to overturn the Trinity and the nonsense that, you know, people have an everlasting immortal soul that survives the death of the body. Those are not powerful works and lying signs. We're talking about something that Satan fabricates in order to convince people that Christ has become ruling in his kingdom, that the day of Jehovah is here. That's what Paul warned us not to be alarmed over. And that's exactly what Jehovah's Witnesses have believed. And so Satan has been allowed to 
Look, I mean, the seven times I've, I've brought this up before, there is no way when Jesus spoke of the Gentile times, the appointed times of the nations to dominate Jerusalem, there is no way the apostles would have ever imagined that Jesus was referring to Babylon's destruction of Jerusalem, which happened five centuries before. Jesus was talking about a future desolation of the holy place and of the antitypical Jerusalem. And so, but again, you know, Satan has been allowed to fabricate this seven times and from 607 to 1914 and boom, right on schedule. The great war erupted and every unrighteous deception after that, the relatively minor persecution of the watchtower that carted off eight officials to prison and (laughs) over the ensuing decades, that has been woven into the fulfillment of so many prophecies in the Bible, the great release from Babylon the Great. Wonder of wonders, Jehovah has delivered his people. (laughs) Woo-hoo! I'm convinced. (laughs) So there you go. But I sound like a raving loony, of course. I'm an apostate and all of that. But what happens when the missiles start flying? Then it's a whole new, uh, whole new game, you might say. And everything that Jehovah's Witnesses believe about 1914 and all that, it will just crumble. And unfortunately, many will be stumbled, as Jesus said. When, this is another question here, when the angel said in Revelation, woe to the earth and to the sea, could that have been both literal and symbolic? If symbolic, may it represent the sea of mankind and the earth, uh, the legal aspects that have at times been favorable to Jehovah's people. And I think, yes, that's that's really the way the Watchtower teaches it. it it's not, we're not so much concerned about uh, the literal earth and the sea. Yes, it's being polluted, absolutely, but uh, it's being polluted because the civilization that has dominated it is corrupt and have not exactly been good caretakers of what they've been entrusted with. But Satan, obviously, is the god of this world. And Jehovah's judgment begins with the God of this world. When Satan hurls down Satan and his demons, that is the first act of judgment. And when the God of this world goes down, you can believe that it's going to have an enormous impact on the world that he is God of. And uh, that's what we're going to have to deal with. Okay, this is a fairly common question, and it's worded in various ways. Can you explain to me what you think the Bible is saying as to what Jehovah's Witnesses, who can see the errors and problems within the organization, but who still love Jehovah and believe the teachings, what are we supposed to do? 
what are we to do? Where are we to go? And then they add this comment. I know I can't preach from door to door when the two-witness rule is being adhered to and causing so much harm. How could I defend it? What do witnesses preach now? I can't go along with the ever-changing teachings. The faithful slave has become just the governing body now and the overlapping generation, etc., etc., etc. Okay, so um, what does the Bible say? Well, I can tell you what Jesus said and did, and that should really be our example, shouldn't it? We can look at Jesus' ministry as being two phases. There was the phase of his ministry before his death, and then there was another phase of his ministry after he was resurrected, but before he ascended. And really, you could say there's a third phase after he ascended. But really, just two, two phases that I want to consider. When Jesus was in the flesh, he was a Jew, and he was subject to the law of Moses, and he always obeyed the law of Moses, and he supported the Jewish system of things. For example, Jesus went to meetings at the synagogue. Even though the synagogue was not part of the arrangement that Moses set up, apparently it came into existence after uh, the Babylonian exile when the Jews, uh, some of them went back to the land of Palestine, but many were scattered throughout the, the known world. Uh, but they kept their Jewish heritage and they set up little kingdom halls, you might say, places of meeting, and they were scattered as throughout Palestine as well. And Jesus went, for example, to the synagogue in his hometown when he announced that he was the Messiah. And um, he, he performed a lot of healings on the Sabbath in the synagogues and so forth. And he also went to all the Jewish festivals at the temple. But Jesus knew that the system was corrupt, didn't he? But he never advised the Jews to rebel against it or not to fulfill their obligations to the law. In fact, the Pharisees were not really part of, of this mosaic system either. They developed uh, sometime after the, uh, the exile and the repatriation along with the Sadducees. Nevertheless, the Pharisees had you know, religious authority over the life of the Jews. They, they could put you out of the synagogue. It would ruin your life. And they would. If, if you confessed belief in Jesus, they agreed that you were, you were out. You were disfellowshipped. You were exiled. You couldn't do business with your fellow Jews. You're, you were in trouble. So Jesus knew they were corrupt. He, in fact, he denounced the Pharisees. But he told his disciples, whatever the Pharisees tell you, do it. Only not with their hypocrisy. 
So Jesus instructed his disciples to be in subjection to that system. Not only did Jesus know it was corrupt, he knew it was going to be destroyed. He said, the temple is going to be thrown down. And yet, Jesus went to the temple. He cleansed the temple of the money changers on two occasions, once at the very beginning of his ministry and once at the very end. Take another example. When Jesus cleansed a leper, now that would have been a good opportunity for him to say, yes, I'm the Messiah, come and follow me and be my disciple. But he didn't say that. He said, go and show yourself to the priest and offer up the sacrifice that Moses prescribed. So again, he supported that arrangement, even though he knew it was temporary, that it was going to be dissolved. Okay, now take, take the second aspect of Jesus' ministry, his post-resurrection ministry. Then he opened up his disciples' minds. Previously, he told them, he sent them out to preach the kingdom of God is here. And they really didn't know what they were preaching, did they? They thought Jesus was going to become king. In fact, he rode into Jerusalem on, on the uh, ass, and they thought that was it. Here is the Messiah. And <laughs> wow, they were in first shock. Jesus was executed. <laughs> But then after his resurrection, he opened up their minds and he gave them an, a new ministry, really, and sent them out to the world. And they were no longer subject to the Pharisees because the Pharisees and chief priests ordered them to stop preaching in this name of this Jesus, and they refused you see the point? Previously, Jesus said, whatever they do, tell you. And now Peter stands up and says, whether it is righteous in your eyes to obey you or not, you decide for yourselves. We have to obey God as ruler. Jesus commanded them to preach, and that's what they did. So they were no longer subject to that organization. You getting the point? Knowing the problems and errors within the organization is only half of the equation. What is the solution? What is the answer? The person is asking, where do we go? Well, the time will come when you will have to go. And that is what Jesus was speaking of when he said, when you see the disgusting thing standing where it ought not, then drop what you're doing and flee. Where do we go? Where do we? I can't answer that. But the time will come when there'll be a change. That's what Jesus is talking about. The organization that will have existed to do God's will up until then, at that point, will no longer be God's organization. A new reality will come into being, and it will require faith to make the transition, just as it required faith on the part of those who believed Jesus to go against 
the Jewish system of things, which they had to do after Jesus was resurrected if they wanted to, to be Christians. And Jesus said, you'll be persecuted, you'll be thrown out of the synagogue, they will kill you, and that's exactly what happened. So I've tried to, you know, look, I'm, I am not your average XJW who's, you know, warning people to get out of this cult. It's a, no, I'm pointing forward to that new reality, the coming of Christ. Presently, Jehovah's Witnesses are under the influence of this man of lawlessness, this deluding influence, so that, that's the source of the error and the problems and the hypocrisy. But the coming of Christ will change all of that. It will bring an end to the watchtower and a new reality will open up that will only be accessible by those who have faith. But if we go off now looking for a new religion, that, where's that going to leave us? I would point out, the, the questioner sort of betrayed his own mindset. And it seems on the surface to be, you know, a comment stemming from integrity. It says, I know I can't preach from door to door. And he says, I, I can't go along with ever-changing teaching. So the questioner here has laid down the boundaries. I can't do this. I can't defend this. I won't do that. And my question to you is, would you do it if Jehovah asked you to? Because that's what we're talking about here. Jesus said, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this in your name and expel demons in your name and perform? And Jesus said, oh, look, I never knew you. Get out of here. But the one doing the will of my Father will inherit life. The one doing the will of my Father. What is the Father's will? Let's go back to that, what Jesus said. Go, make disciples, preaching and teaching to, for them to obey my commandments. So when Jesus told the, his disciples to do whatever the Pharisees told them, that, that was probably uh, a little bit stunning because they saw how Jesus ripped the Pharisees and showed that they were wrong. They had errors and problems within their organization. Yet Jesus said, do whatever they tell you to do. See, here, here's the deal. Jehovah's judgment is coming primarily against the leadership of his organization. Doesn't it say in the letter of James that teachers will receive a heavier judgment? And then when we consider that... that Jesus' judgment is coming against his faithful and discreet slave. That's right. The faithful and discreet slave gets beaten with a few strokes for his ignorance, for his errors, for his problems. So, it's not for us to dictate our terms to Jehovah, is it? 
if we want to do Jehovah's will, that means that we would have to subject ourselves to perhaps some unpleasantries that may seem to rub us the wrong way. Uh, well, I'll, I'll leave that question. <laughs> this is one time where I'm going to leave the questioner with a questioner. Will you do it if you think it's Jehovah's will? Hmm? All right. Okay, here. Now, another question. What is the role of the Jews in the last days? Uh, the short answer is they, there is no role. Jesus told the Jews, look, he said, the nation, excuse me, the kingdom of God is being taken from you and given to a nation producing its fruit. So they, they were no longer Jehovah's organization. They're no longer God's covenanted people. Christians are. And sure, a lot of Jews became Christians, and Jews living now are certainly invited to put faith in Jesus and accept the truth. But um, look, I mean, Jehovah's Witnesses have their deluding influence, but uh, so do the evangelicals and their nonsensical belief that Israel in the Middle East has anything to do with the fulfillment of Bible prophecy. It doesn't. And I'll just leave, leave it at that. He has another um, couple of questions here. What are your thoughts on the microchip? It is becoming more and more common, especially amongst the high technology industries. I watched your video where you mentioned the mark of the beast is symbolic. Does that mean that if the microchip were to become a requirement, it's okay to take it? Well, I'm putting a microchip in you is uh, pretty benign. I mean, like I mentioned before, I mean, my dog has a microchip, and as near as I can tell, it hasn't suffered any adverse consequences. It, you know, it, it's it's what. If it becomes a requirement, then the question is, what are the details of that requirement? Does it, will it require that we pledge our allegiance in some way? And then that would be a problem, wouldn't it? So, yeah, if, if it comes down to a microchip, um, that in itself would not condemn us before God. But if we are forced in some way to recant our faith— and that's what Satan is after, isn't it? Back in the first century, of course, there weren't microchips, but the Christians that were arrested and put in the Colosseum, Satan made a convenient way for them to uh, survive, you might say, to compromise their faith. There was a little altar there with a burning flame and a little pile of incense, and all they had to do to save their life was take a little pinch of incense and sprinkle it on the flame and that would symbolize their devotion and recognition of Caesar as God. And the Christians uh, refused to do that. Maybe some compromised, we don't know, but uh, so that's what Satan wants. He wants us to compromise our faith. And if it comes down to a microchip, 
and there is no compromise involved. Sure, you can put a chip in me, whatever, track me around. They can track you anyway with your iPhone. It, you know, we're, we're all wired in. And, you know, unless you live out in the forest somewhere and have no uh, wires <laughs> or uh, digital devices, and you're off the grid, as they say. But here is an, one more question from this same questioner. He said, do Catholic people have a chance to be saved despite their idol worship? <laughs> he said, they consider the Catholic Church to be the true temple of God and all other Christians to be sectarians. Will Jehovah forgive them? They're so far from the truth. I was born and raised Catholic until I read the Bible on my own and realized that Jesus could not possibly be God. Jehovah's Witnesses are the only ones who know this, but I figured it out on my own, and I was just a child. How are people so blinded from really educated people to the least educated one? I don't understand. <laughs> it became so clear to me when I began to read the Bible. Well, it is a phenomenon, isn't it? Of course, Catholic people can be saved, but they have to come to an accurate knowledge of the truth. And uh, as you say, they're so far from the truth. But really, it comes down to what a person wants. Does a person want to know God? Does a person want to know the truth? And go back to Jesus when he was on the earth. Could there have been any more convincing evidence given that Jesus was the Messiah he walked up and down the length of Israel, performing all manner of miracles and preaching great crowds of people, and stories of him went throughout the whole region. And yet, very few put faith in him. And why is that? Well, in the eighth chapter of John, Jesus explained. He said to the Jews, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I have not come of my own initiative, but that one sent me. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? Because you cannot listen to my word. You are from your father, the devil, and you wish to do the desires of your father. Pretty simple, isn't it? A person doesn't have to be, a, you know, a devil worshiper, like, a, you know, involved in Wicca or witchcraft. People that simply don't believe God, atheists, they're from their father, the devil. They cannot listen to the truth. They don't want to listen to the truth. They love this world. So that's it. You are uh, blessed that you have a heart that longs to know God and you love him. So protect it and uh, keep reading your Bible. And uh, thank you for your question. Well, I'm looking at the clock here and it's um, 35 minutes. I have a number of other questions here. But, you know, my, my voice starts going after a half hour or so and I... I apologize for that. I apologize for not doing an April program, but I'm going to try to do another episode tomorrow or the next day and uh, get to the little backlog of questions I have here. 
So uh, until then, (laughs) thank you for listening and may Jehovah bless your search for the truth.